This is episode 129 of the Dear Discreet Guide Trouble at Work podcast. This episode is titled, Catherine Ann Porter and Her Literary Virus. This episode is part of our Near Daily series during the pandemic. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Dear Discreet Guide Trouble at Work, where we talk about work, working, and how to make work better. If it's work-related, we're on it. Who knew talking about work would be this much fun? I'm Jennifer Crittenden, a former CFO and host of the show, and thank you for joining our quest to improve our workplaces. Let's do this. A work that often shows up in what I think of now as the viral literature is Pale Horse, Pale Rider, which is a collection of short novels by Catherine Ann Porter. And I thought we'd spend some time today talking about that work and also about her and her life, and then also eventually her interest in the Sacco and Vansetti case. Pale Horse, Pale Rider was originally published in 1939, so quite a long time ago. And it's got uh, three short novels, Old Mortality, Noon Wine, and then Pale Horse, Pale Rider. Uh, They've sometimes been referred to as novellas, and we get a hint of Porter's attitude toward certain things and her acerbity uh, when she Uh, went on to say that she objected to the word novella and she called it a slack, boneless, affected word that we do not need to describe anything. She said, please call my works by their right names. We have four that cover every division, short stories, long stories, short novels, and novels. Anyway, so the title story, Pale Horse, Pale Rider, is about the relationship between a newspaper woman, Miranda, and a soldier, uh, Adam, during the influenza epidemic of 1918, so the, during the Spanish flu. And during the course of the narrative, Miranda becomes sick and recovers uh, after Adam has been taking care of her, so he tended her. So the story takes place in 1918, in the midst of both World War I and the influenza epidemic, Obviously, the concurrence of those two things is very significant. So here's a line from the story. They say that it is really caused by germs brought by a German ship to Boston, she tells Miranda. Somebody reported seeing a strange, thick, greasy-looking cloud float up out of Boston Harbor. Then a little later, the worst of the war is the fear and suspicion, Miranda tells Adam, the people who look as if they had pulled down the shutters over their minds and their hearts, ready to leap if you make one gesture or say one word they do not instantly understand. It's the skulking about and the lying. It's what war does to the mind and heart. And I couldn't help but think of people's behavior on social media and even on a platform as benign as Nextdoor, if you have that in your town or in your neighborhood. 
I've just seen some really crazy postings and, you know, people just appear to be kind of out of their minds. So it's helpful to think about how these characters in Pale Horse, Pale Rider were coping with a situation that really was extremely grave. And it gives us more sympathy for how human beings are reacting right now. So here's uh, another excerpt. Strolling, keeping step, his stout, polished, well-made boots setting themselves down firmly beside her thin-soled black suede, they put off as long as they could the end of their moment together and kept up as well as they could their small talk that flew back and forth over little grooves worn in the thin upper surface of the brain, things you could say and hear click reassuringly at once without disturbing the radiance that played and darted about the simple and lovely miracle of being two persons named Adam and Miranda, 24 years old each, alive and on earth at the same time. Are you in the mood for dancing, Miranda? And I'm always in the mood for dancing, Adam. And there were things in the way. The day that ended with dancing was a long way to go. And Porter herself wrote at one point that the arts are what we find again when the ruins are cleared away. It also made me think about our current situation and what will be revealed once we come out on the other side of this thing that we're in and will we discover that creative people have been engaging in really exciting activities and that once all this kind of modern consternation and preoccupation with contemporary news is pushed back, what will rise to the surface? Like, what, what will we see? I'm very curious about that. To talk a little bit about it, Catherine Ann Porter, she was born in 1890 and died in 1980. Some cool uh, dates there. So she lived to be 90 years old, pretty remarkable. And it's amazing to think of all the world events that she observed during those 90 years. Two world wars, the Spanish flu, the Depression, the 60s, Vietnam, Watergate. It's all really amazing. She was an American journalist, essayist, short story writer, novelist, and political activist. Her 1962 novel, Ship of Fools, was the best-selling novel in America that year, but it's really been her short stories that have given her more uh, fame. She was born in Texas as Callie Porter, and she was only two years old when her mother died. Her dad then took the four kids to live with his mother, whose name was Catherine Ann Porter, And Callie left home at 16 in 1906 and married a rancher who had uh, temper problems and problems with alcohol. And he threw her down the stairs, breaking her ankle at one point. They divorced in 1915, and Callie adopted her grandmother's name as part of her divorce decree. It was a momentous year for her. She was diagnosed with TB that year and spent two years in isolation where she decided to become a writer. And again, I couldn't help but think like during our quarantine, how many people have dabbled with writing and maybe started thinking that when we come out of all this, maybe they want to try their hand at writing. It turned out that her illness was actually bronchitis, not tuberculosis. And she began writing for the Fort Worth critic covering dramas and society gossip 
which I was actually kind of curious to find some examples of that and also a little uh, nervous about finding things that she might write uh, with her temperament. In 1918, she moved to Denver and uh, fell ill with the Spanish flu and nearly died. And her hair fell out, and when it grew back, it was completely white. Or so goes the uh, mythology, although a photograph from her in 1930 looks like she's a little bit more of a brunette, but, uh, but who knows. Anyway, she covers that experience in Pale Horse, Pale Rider. In 1919, she moved to New York and got kind of radical at that point. She joined a leftist movement in Mexico, which included Diego Rivera, and she was traveling back and forth and publishing stories. In 1930, she published Flowering Judas and Other Stories, uh, which was so acclaimed that that alone would have guaranteed her place in literature. I can't help mentioning that she was married four times. I get divorcing the ankle breaker. That certainly seems justified. Uh, But then in 1926, she married Ernest Stock and divorced him a year later. Biographers seem to think that she suffered multiple miscarriages, a stillbirth, and eventually had a hysterectomy after she contracted gonorrhea from her husband. So appropriate for Mother's Day, here's a woman who perhaps did want to be a mother but never was able to achieve that. She then married Eugene Presley, whom she was married to for eight years, and met her would-be fourth husband and actually divorced Presley to marry him, Albert Erskine, who was a graduate student. And he divorced her uh, four years later after discovering that she was 20 years his senior, so quite a character. And then she uh, did not marry for uh, about 40 years and died as a divorcee. During the 30s and 40s and 50s, she had a prominent reputation as a distinguished writer, but her limited output and uh, sales left her living on grants and advances. She was a writer-in-residence or or teacher at the University of Chicago, University of Michigan, University of Virginia. She also taught at Stanford, Washington and Lee, and the University of Texas, where, according to uh, Wikipedia, her unconventional manner of teaching made her popular, Uh, also an indication of her personality. The stories from Pale Horse, Pale Rider and Flowering Judas were made into radio dramas, and she made some television appearances. Uh, Ship of Fools was published in 1962, and selling the film rights to that finally gave her some financial security. That movie was directed by Stanley Kramer and featured Vivian Leigh in her final film appearance. Porter had worked on the book for 20 years, and its intended publishers died, actually, before it appeared. It's the story of a bunch of mixed characters on a passenger freighter traveling the 27-day journey from Veracruz to Germany in 1913. And after those books were published, and she really hadn't written anything significant for a long time, in 1966, she won the Pulitzer Prize and the National Book Award for the collected stories of Catherine Ann Porter, and she was also appointed to the American Academy of Arts and Letters. In 1977, she posted this piece I want to talk a little bit about called The Never-Ending Wrong, which was an account of the trial and execution of Sacco Vansetti, which she had actually protested 50 years earlier. 
I don't know if you know about this case. It was uh, two Italian migrant anarchists were convicted of murder and armed robbery in Massachusetts way back in 1920. There was actually a song about them that uh, Joan Baez co-wrote and sang. Here's to you, Nicola and Bart. Rest forever here in our hearts. That last and final moment is yours. That agony is your triumph. It was also translated into French and sung by Georges Moustaki, if you know who he is. Maintenant, Nicolas Bar, vous dormez au fond de nos cœurs. Vous étiez tout seul dans la mort, mais par elle vous vaincrez. Sorry to do that to you without warning. Those songs take me back to my hippie past and my idealistic youth. Anyway, I know a lot about this case because I chose it as the topic of my research essay in Mr. Lehrer's English class in high school, who was a teacher who surely had a lot to do with my uh, interest in writing and reading. Rest in peace, Mr. Lehrer. Anyway, the case was a total mess with conflicting testimony and really confusing ballistics evidence. And I remember writing paragraphs and paragraphs about the guns There was certainly room for reasonable doubt, but all the appeals were eventually denied, and it drew worldwide attention and protests across the globe, and writers and academics weighed in, but after a hasty review in secret deliberations, Sacco and Vincetti were executed by the electric chair, prompting rioting in London and elsewhere. My own essay was inconclusive. I couldn't come down on one side or the other because the evidence was such a mess. Nor could I tell if either, neither, or both were guilty. Anyway, in 1977, shortly after um, I finished my essay, 50 years after their execution, uh, Massachusetts Governor Dukakis said that they had been unfairly tried and convicted. You can find a copy of Catherine Ann Porter's essay about Sacco and Vincetti in The Atlantic Online, and I'll provide a link to it because I think it's actually one of her more significant works. It's a long account of her protests, you know, that had occurred 50 years earlier, and also of being jailed while protesting the innocence of Sacco and Vincetti. And also her growing cynicism about the Communist Party and that leftist group that she had gotten involved with in Mexico. Also about a relationship that she developed with a policeman who was arresting protesters. Uh, There are a couple of excerpts here I thought you might be interested in because I think they're quite revealing about her own growth as, as an adult. Four incidents a good many years apart are somehow sharply related in my mind. Long ago, a British judge was quoted as saying he refused clemency at popular demand to uphold the principle of capital punishment and to prove he could not be intimidated by public protest. During Hitler's time, Himmler remarked that for the good of the state, popular complaints should be ignored, and if they persisted, the complainers should be punished. 
Judge Webster Thayer, during the Sacco Vanzetti episode, was heard to boast while playing golf. Did you see what I did to those anarchistic bastards? And the grim little person named Rosa Barron, who was head of my particular group during the Sacco Vanzetti demonstrations in Boston, snapped at me when I expressed the wish that we might save the lives of Sacco and Vanzetti. Alive? What for? They're no earthly good to us alive. These painful incidents illustrate at least four common perils in the legal handling that anyone faces when accused of a capital crime of which he is not guilty, especially if he has a dubious place in society, an unpopular nationality, erroneous political beliefs, the wrong religion socially, poverty, low social standing. The list could go on, but this is enough. Both of these unfortunate men, Sacco and Vincetti, suffered nearly all of these disadvantages. A fearful word has been used to cover the whole list of prejudices and misinformation, and in some deeply mysterious way, their names have been associated with it, anarchy. In this essay, she also expresses her outrage about the treatment of a different kind of criminal. In appearance, it was a commonplace crime by quite ordinary, average, awkward gangsters, the only unusual feature being that these men were tried, convicted, and put to death. For gangsters in those days, at any rate those who operated boldly enough on a large scale, while not so powerful or so securely entrenched as the mafia today, enjoyed a curious immunity in society and under the law. We have only to remember the completely public career of Al Capone, who as chief of the bloodiest gang ever known until that time in this country, lived as if a magic circle had been drawn around him. He could at last be convicted only of not paying his income tax, that, quote, income, he had got by methodical wholesale crime, murder, drug traffic, bootleg liquor, prostitution, and a preposterous mode of blackmail called, quote, protection, a cash payment on demand instead of a gunpoint visit, the vampire bat of small businesses such as family delicatessens, Chinese laundries, etc. After serving his time on Alcatraz, he returned to Florida to live in peace and respectable luxury, while his syphilitic brain softened into imbecility. When he died, there was a three-day sentimental wallow on the radio, a hysterical orgy of nostalgia for the good old times when a guy could really get away with it. I remember the tone of the drooling bathos in which one of them said, Ah, just the same, in spite of it all, he was a great guy. They just don't make him like that anymore. Of course, time has proved since how wrong the announcer was. It is obvious they do make them like that nearly every day, like that, but even more indescribably monstrous. And World Radio told us day by day that this was not just local stuff. It was pandemic. There's a section in Truman Capote's unfinished final novel, Answered Prayers, that uh, allegedly relates to Porter. And it's a uh, cool description I'll read for you here. When I first met Miss Langman, and I never called her anything else, she was far into her late fifties, yet she looked eerily unaltered from her long-ago Gentha portrait. The author of Wild Asparagus and Five Black Guitars had eyes the color of Anatolian waters, and her hair, a sleek silvery blue, was brushed straight back, fitting her erect head like an airy cap. She said that first night at Bodie's, Would you see me home? I hear thunder, and I'm afraid of it. 
She was not afraid of thunder, nor of anything else, except unreturned love and commercial success. Miss Langman's exquisite renown, while justified, was founded on one novel and three short story collections, none of them much bought or read outside academia and the pastures of the Cognoscenti. Like the value of diamonds, her prestige depended upon a controlled and limited output, and in those terms she was a royal success, the queen of the writer-in-residence swindle, the prize's racket, the high honorarium con, the grants in aid to struggling artists' shit. Everybody, the Ford Foundation, the Guggenheim Foundation, the National Institute of Arts and Letters, the National Council on the Arts, the Library of Congress et al., was hell-bound to gorge her with tax-free greenery, and Miss Langman, like those circus midgets who lose their living if they grow an inch or two, was ever aware her prestige would collapse if the ordinary public began to read and reward her. To return to Pale Horse Pale Rider, Porter said her illness had changed her forever. She wrote, It just simply divided my life, cut across it like that, so that everything before that was just getting ready, and after that I was in some strange way altered, ready. It took me a long time to go out and live in the world again. I was really alienated in the pure sense. It was, I think, the fact that I had really participated in death, that I knew what death was, and had almost experienced it. I had what the Christians called the beatific vision, and the Greeks called the happy day, the happy vision just before death. Now, if you have had that and survived it, come back from it, you are no longer like other people, and there's no use deceiving yourself that you are. It makes me wonder if some of our listeners or someone you know might feel that way after the coronavirus pandemic. That's it, everybody. You've made it through another episode of Dear Discreet Guide, Trouble at Work. During the pandemic, we'll be changing our format in honor of those who are quarantined or working on the front lines. We'll put out shorter shows on a daily or near-daily basis early in the morning to start your day on a positive and interesting note. We'll be considering work-related issues relevant while COVID-19 is impacting the world. If you have a question or a comment or a message for our listeners, please get in touch. We'd love to hear from you. You can reach us through the website, discreetguide.com, D-I-S-C-R-E-E-T, where you can also find other resources about working better together. Thank you for joining my quest to improve our workplaces, our work lives, and our lives in general. And thanks for listening. We look forward to returning to our old format when the world has returned to a more normal state. In the meantime, please hang in there, stay safe, and know that I care about you.